invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, my favorite epistles in the New Testament. Likely a sermon, it is called a word of exhortation or word of encouragement in the book, and uh, some people have uh, speculated or thought that potentially this was preached all in one sitting. We are not going to do that this evening, but we are going to take all of chapter one. So I invite you to find chapter one of Hebrews. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible word. Let's give our intention as it's read. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And then he applies it very specifically in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Let's ask for God's blessing on his word this evening. Oh, Father, we ask now that you would work in our hearts, Lord, uh, strengthen our uh, feeble knees, help us to, to shake off uh, the tiredness of the end of a Sunday, Lord, and to glory in your Son. Holy Spirit, would you please do the work that no human being can do, Lord, and write your word on our hearts this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first chapter of Hebrews is a spectacular, glorious uh, hymn almost to the glory of Jesus, the greater nature of Jesus. He's greater than prof the prophets of old, and he's greater than the angels. But all of this glory is designed to prevent us from drifting, as I read in chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay much closer attention now at this moment in redemptive history to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. That's the application that the author wants us to think about it. Look closely at this testimony about Jesus so that you do not drift away. And so I want to ask you this evening, have you seen drift in your own life and in your own heart? The 
Christian life is periods of ups and sometimes, sadly, downs. Moments where Christ does not seem that glorious and beautiful. Uh, Times where sin seems more enticing and we are gradually drifting toward it. The book of Hebrews is a call to steadfast endurance, uh, to run the race set before us, as we will see. And uh, I want us to, to... take into account as we begin this message this evening that drift and apostasy is real. People really do walk away from Christ. People who've been raised in the church really do gradually and slowly drift away from Him. I have an acquaintance that I went to seminary with. Uh, He was raised uh, similar to me as a pastor's kid, conservative uh, Baptist uh, pastor's kid, went to a Christian solid Bible college, four years, and then went to the same seminary with me, interned at the same church that I interned uh, at, and then gradually uh, deconstructed is the way that he put it. Um, and I watched very, very uh, grieving uh, this uh, uh, slow progression of gradually walking away from Christ, calls himself a, a universalist Christian who's decided he's not uh, going to attend church. So what happens in a case like this? Well, drift is gradual. It's not one decisive moment where you suddenly fall, like King David uh, fell for Queen Bathsheba, Uh, but it's just a slow creep away from Christ. In that sense, drift is more dangerous than falling suddenly, right? Falling suddenly, you can catch, someone can confront you with a a drastic sin, but slowly drifting away from Christ and from His church is more easy to miss. Uh, Sometimes people just drop off the map and you don't know what happened to them. Imagine being out at sea. Uh, You lose your coordinates, you lose your compass, and slowly your, uh, your ship is just drifting and you wake up one day and you don't even know where you are. This is the danger of drift. Our hearts slowly become deaf to the gospel. We lose our anchor. Uh, like a gaining weight. I don't know if any of you have this experience in midlife. Uh, gaining weight does not happen in midlife all at once. You gain some pounds each month and you look back a few years uh, down the road and you realize, oh, this happened to me over time. The drift of uh, straying slowly away from the gospel is very dangerous. And this is the, the warning and the call this evening to us from the book of Hebrews. But the author of Hebrews, thankfully, has a very powerful antidote for gospel drift. It's very simple. Basking and worshiping the glory of Jesus basking in and worshiping at the feet of our glorious Jesus. He's going to make the point in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, that Jesus is immensely greater than all the prophets of the Old Testament that were pointing forward to him. And then second, he's going to make the point that he is greater than all the angels. And as we look at these passages, the goal is that you would worship Christ, and as you look at him and see him for all his glorious, awesome beauty, your heart would be anchored to him and not be allowed to slowly drift and be pulled and lulled away. So let's consider first, as God's Son, that Jesus is greater 
than the prophets. As God's son, he is greater than the prophets. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It begins very, very beautifully in these first four verses. It's really a summary in some sense of what the author of Hebrews is going to do in the whole book of Hebrews. It's written very poetically and very uh, uh, with, with high style. And it says that in Old Testament times, in the times of our fathers, that's a way of referring to all the Old Testament, God spoke at a level of distance, right? He had to speak through prophets. He had to either speak through prophets or through the words that were recorded that prophets spoke. And he's not just speaking about the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. He's referring again to all of the Old Testament revelation. But in these last days, he's saying, something remarkable has happened. God isn't speaking at a level of distance anymore. He's not speaking through prophets. He's not speaking through recorded scripture even. He's come to speak to us himself. He's come to address us. It's like a person who's fallen in love and is waiting for the person that they love to come home from a long, long trip. And finally, letter writing is over and they come face to face and they get to enjoy hearing directly from the one they love. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And he says that the son is unique in a variety of ways. We're going to consider them in chronological order, not in the order that the the verses lay them out. But let's look at the uniqueness of Jesus. First, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. You remember Philip said in chapter 14 of John, Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus says to Philip, have you known me so long? And don't you know that in seeing me, you have seen the Father? Jesus can say about himself, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. And he is described as the radiance of the glory of God. You remember in the old covenant, coming into the presence of God had to be mediated and guarded in lots of different ways in the tabernacle and then the temple. Moses says to the Lord, just show me one thing. Show me your glory. I want to see you, God. And the Lord says, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll pass by, but my face no man will see but what do you get to see in the new covenant? We with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are transformed from one degree of glory to another. When you hear the preached word of Jesus according to the New Testament, you are seeing the very face of Jesus. Galatians tells us that before your very eyes, Jesus was crucified and you have this intimate access to the very glory, the radiance of God himself when you see Jesus in that way. But second, he's greater than the prophets in that he created all things. Just look up at the stars. Go out when you're camping or when you're on vacation sometime further away from the city and look up at the stars and see the handiwork uh, which was only possible made through the sun. Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care about him? We went camping recently, not that far away, about 30 minutes. And my girls could even in that context look up and say to me, Dad, look at all the stars. 
And the author of Hebrews says, all of that was created through the Son. Everything that has been made was made through the, the, the preexistent Son. But God did not just make the world, set it up, and then kind of set it rolling like a clock at a distance. Instead, He also holds everything together. We don't think very much about this, but how does all creation stay intact and together? The author of Hebrews says it's the very word of the Son that holds all creation together like a glue. Ancient people wanted to know how is everything held together and The author of Hebrews says it's through the word of Christ's power. If Jesus was not consistently speaking, the whole universe would fall apart. He's sustaining. He's holding. He's governing. So I want to just pause at this juncture and say, do you pray with these kinds of things in mind? Do you pray with the glory of the exact imprint of the very nature of the Father in mind when you know that you are Uh, addressing the Father through the Son, do you realize the the greatness of the glory of Jesus? Do you realize that the one who created all the universe that you live in and walk around in is also the one that's upholding it, that nothing escapes the preservation and the binding everything together of the Son? When you address the Father in the Son, you are able to worship this God, this glorious, awesome God who has spoken to us not through prophets now in these last days, but through His Son. But I remember one of my professors in in college pressing home to me. I was looking at the notes in my Bible, the reality that the most remarkable and and difficult thing that's laid out very, very briefly, verse 3, It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right side of the majesty on high. See, Jesus, the Son, the eternal Son who's always existed, who created all things by the word of his power, who sustains all things through the word of his power, took all of that majesty and glory and he came down and took on our flesh and made purification for sins. The worst thing, the worst sin that plagues our conscience the repeated sin that we wonder, can God still forgive me? The promise is it has been washed away. It has been cleansed. Why? Because the eternal Son made purification once for all for our sins. And the, the, this uh, introduction is bookended by the giving of an inheritance and then the inheriting of a name. Notice verse 2. He appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world. And then verse 4, having become as superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In the Old Testament, kings were promised a land. They would rule over a land and uh, God would, would give a certain a parceling of land to the different tribes as well. But notice the Son is given the inheritance of all things. Jesus is the one who inherits, it, inherits the whole creation. And he's also inherited a name that is massively and more glorious than the angels. So then this is the transitionary point. The next verses, verses 5 to 14, then start to unpack the superiority of Jesus 
to the angels. So this is our second point. As God's son, Jesus is also greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. God spoke previously through prophets. And in these last days, he's spoken by his son. And then second now, as God's son, he is also greater than the angels. And remember what the point of all this is. God has revealed himself in an awesome way to keep our hearts from drifting away. He spoke by prophets in the past, now through his son, but he's also spoken through the the son who is greater than the angels to keep us from drifting away. Verses 5, 6, and 7 compare the angels to the son of God. And the point of all of it is to demonstrate that Jesus as God's son is different than the angels. He is divine. The angels are called to worship in verse 6. And I want to highlight the nature of this difference by just looking at the furniture of Jesus' rule. This is really how we're going to unpack this next section, the furniture of Jesus' rule. So kids, if you're imagining Christ at the right side, at the right hand of the majesty on high, I want you to ask, where is Jesus sitting He's sitting on a throne. What is he holding in his hand? The text says that he's holding a scepter. What is flowing down from his head? It says the oil of gladness. And finally, where are his feet resting? They're resting on a footstool. This is the furniture of Christ's rule. The awesome throne of Christ, the scepter of uprightness, the oil of gladness, and the footstool that Jesus is resting his feet on. Let's take each of those things as we see the greatness of Jesus greater than the angels. Well, uh, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7 is quoted. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Son's throne is eternal. This is what kings wanted in the Old Testament. All kings in all time really desire an eternal, everlasting rule. You remember the promise to David and to David's dynasty was that there would always be a son sitting on his throne. You can see a description of Solomon's throne in 1 Kings 10, verses 18 to 20. The king made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top, and on each side of the seat were armrests, two lions standing besides the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. You can imagine Solomon climbing these enormous steps up to his throne. There were lions on each step on each side, and as he ascends this massive throne, there's one very simple point being driven home. This is the greatness of Solomon's rule, ascending this massive throne uh, surrounded by lions. But what would happen to Solomon's throne? He would sin against the Lord, and because of his sin, he would lose this reign and dominion. It would all be temporary. And the the rhythm and the pattern, if you remember the kings of the Old Testament, is that there were kings that ruled better and there were kings that ruled worse. And over and over and over again, the Lord judged the kings of Israel for their unfaithfulness. The greatness of the throne that these kings were intended to sit on was always in their lives at least, temporary. And the Father says about the Son in Hebrews 1, your throne, O God, is forever and 
ever. So that's the first aspect of the, the furniture of the son's ruling. But second, notice his scepter. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. As, I, as I've already said, one of the problems with the kings in the Old Testament is that their rule was always taken from them. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 12 says, it's an, an abomination to kings to do evil for the throne is established through righteousness. It's an abomination to kings to do evil for the throne is established through righteousness. But over and over again, kings did this abominable thing. They disobeyed against the Lord. They rejected the good rule of God and they were cast out of their rule. But Christ holds the scepter of uprightness. Christ is finally the one who actually loves righteousness, who hates all wickedness and rules exactly according to the will of God. And it's because of that that there's this third aspect of the description of what he has. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. If you were in the ancient world, you were used to being dry. One of the problems, whenever you went out on a walk or uh, left your tent or lived a, an ordinary day, was you needed a certain kind of ocean, uh, a lotion. And in the ancient world, there was no uh, bottles of lotion that you can just pop out and, and uh, put chapstick and things on your lips. There was oil, constantly rubbing oil on your head and on your hands to try to uh, have your, your whole uh, skin and, and uh, life feel so dry. And in uh, the ancient world, then, they also anointed kings with oil. And this oil is described as the oil of gladness beyond all of Christ's companions. And then finally, there is a footstool, verse 13. To which of the angels has he, the Father, ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? greatest way to humble your enemies was to uh, bring them after you'd conquered them in battle and put them at the bottom of your throne. So if you can imagine Solomon with this massive uh, throne walking up these huge steps, then when he would conquer his enemies, he would bring them to uh, subjugate them, to humble them. There's nothing more humbling than having a king who's conquered you put his, uh, his foot on your neck and say, this is what happens to those who have opposed me and my rule. And the father says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool. And so the, the son is sitting in rule right now at the right hand of the father. He holds a scepter of uprightness. He's been anointed with the oil of gladness. And we're supposed to imagine him with his foot on the, the heads of all of his enemies as he is ruling in the presence of his father. So I want to conclude then asking, how does the Son's greatness help you and protect you from drifting? If the temptation of the Christian life is to always uh, wander and slowly drift away, if we have to be told, pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away, how does the glory of the Son, greater than prophets, greater than angels in His eternal rule protect you from drifting away. Uh, John Piper tells this story as he preached this passage. He says, my dad is a traveling evangelist. He would go away and take 
and talk often to coin collectors. He'd save all his coins and bring them home, and then he and I would sit down together and look at them. And we'd look them up in a book and see, say, is this good, excellent, or is this fair? And we'd push them into the book and we'd try to finish these books. But then something happened. I cannot tell you what happened. We just started to not do it. And there were a few spurts in the years after that of interest. We'd go down in the bottom shelf where there was a little door and we'd push the door. And there they were. We'd pull one out in a little bit at a time and put it back. But then the months would be longer and more time would pass. And today I don't have a clue where those books are and they're probably worth a thousand dollars. The great danger of our life as Christians is to uh, not see the treasure of what we have in the Son of God, to not take in and pay close attention to the glory of who Jesus is, greater than the prophets, the fulfillment of the prophets, and greater than all the angels, to, 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 to neglect the great salvation that he has accomplished. So we're called then this evening not to put the gospel on a dusty collectible shelf, but to treasure the Son. But the one who calls you tonight to pay more careful attention, the eternal Son, who is the very brilliance of the nature and character of God, as we said, did not hold on to the glory of God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, as it says, making purification for sins. He used his awesome power, not for himself, not to just bring glory in himself, but he says he delights to lay down his life for us, his brothers and sisters. The awesome, glorious, eternal king was humbled and despised. In his first coming, he did not put his foot on the necks of his enemies, but he himself was despised and rejected by men. And he was nailed ultimately to a cross. The one who could have dashed his enemies with a scepter of uprightness is himself pierced by a cruel cross. And he cries out on that cross because of the shame and the condemnation of our sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus could have come in his first coming and just destroyed all of his enemies in one pass. But he is glorified and we worship him eternally because he took the form of a servant and because he passed through death for us. And the New Testament always tells us as Jesus embraced that suffering and was brought through to glory, he deserves all glory and all honor. And so he calls you this evening to remember everything that he has done for you, to see the greatness of the brilliance of who he is. And no matter how many times you see your heart drifting and you ask, Lord, when will you make this end? When will you bring me into your glory? He says, I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. I have gone to a cross. I have made purification for all of your sins. So pay careful attention to that gospel, to that glorious son, greater than the prophets of old, greater than the angels of heaven, who rules gloriously at the right hand of the Father and has used his power and his might 
to also lay down his life for us and make purification for our sins. And as we look to that gospel, we're guaranteed that we will not drift away in the end. Let's give thanks for him. Lord God, we pray this evening that you would prevent our hearts from gospel drift, Lord. Please be the steady anchor of our souls, Lord. Help us to take in the majesty of the glory of Jesus, Lord. Restore us, Lord, if we've fallen. May the the oil of the gladness of Christ be something that transforms us as we see that and savor the treasure of who Jesus is, Lord. Would you enable us not to fall away, not to slowly and gradually slip away, Lord. You have promised that not one of those that the Father has given you will be pulled out of your hand. And Lord, would you hold us fast then? Would you grip our hearts, Lord, and prevent us from slipping and drifting gradually away? Lord, we look to you for the effect of your spirits in our lives. Lord, would you pray? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, stand this evening and close our service with the song of redemption.
dear people of God, he blesses you this evening. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you his peace. Amen.